The Money Show. Other people's money. Well, tonight's Other People's Money guest has been a very, very active voice alongside the likes of the late Jabu Mabuza and the pushback against state capture before we even fully understood what was at play in terms of state capture. We knew something was rotten. We just didn't know the full extent of it. And we probably still don't know, frankly, the full extent of it. We're getting a good idea through the Zondo Commission and we're getting a good idea uh, through the books and the testimonies that are being um, uh, playing out each and every single day. But the former general manager of Goldman Sachs in South Africa, now senior fellow and lecturer at the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs at Yale University, is Colin Coleman. And I, I saw the remarks you made last week that reflected the very real pain that you've been feeling following the death of Jabu Mabuza. Colin Coleman, welcome to The Money Show. And uh, what's been an extraordinarily, I think, tumultuous time in all of our lives, but you're taking it, you know, you're feeling this very, very personally. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, yeah. thanks for having me on the show. It's sort of the best of times and the worst of times just today. You know, we had a memorial service for Jabu and the best of times, my father, Max Coleman, turned 95 and I'm here. Uh, <laughs> I saw you posting you know, a picture on, 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 inst- on Instagram with a picture of your dad. And he looks, he doesn't look 95, not, not a day of 85. If, if that, I mean, he looks in fine fettle. That's absolutely remarkable. He's had an incredible life and just so... We, we in South Africa are just so grateful that he's still with us. Um, and he was a parliamentarian. He was a businessman, a doctorate in chemical engineering. Uh, he took up dive, scuba diving when he was 50. And he, he posted his 1400th dive on his 90th birthday with his grandchildren. A, he's a remarkable person to have as a father. Um, what I mean, he was in Nelson Mandela's cabinet, right? I mean, what what got him into ANC politics? You were an activist in your time, and you were in, instrumental in in linking and liaising between business and and the ANC back in those days. What what was his role? So you know, this um, nineteen eighty one, my uh, brother, elder brother, was detained by the security police uh, in September, nineteen eighty one. Uh, at the time when a, a number of South, Afri- South African activists uh, were detained in what the police felt to be a conspiracy uh, linked to Barbara Hogan's um, list of activists working for the ANC. Uh, and my brother was in detention for uh, five months and next to Neil Agat, who, as, as you know, uh, died in detention, the subject of which is uh, you know, under investigation, whether he did in fact commit suicide or uh, his suicide was induced. Uh, but he was certainly tortured. I think that's a matter of record. And in that time, my parents became uh, instantly involved uh, in uh, forming the Detainees Parent Support Committee with a whole bunch of other activists' parents. And, you know, for the next effectively 13 years, up until 1994, uh, were active in uh, human rights organizations, effectively assisting the plight of detainees. And if you see the messages to my father tonight from people like Paul Mashatile and a variety of activists, <laughs> Murphy Morobi phoned him, you know, just the number of people who see my parents as their parents because they really got behind it together with the likes of the Kachalia parents and, and others, they got behind 
you know, effectively the detainees who were, who were really at the mercy of the security police at the time uh, under the Terrorism Act uh, of those times. So, you know, that's what brought them into uh, the struggle, but they they followed it and my family became very involved. My father then became a parliamentarian in the first Mandela government. What's not uh, well known is I was actually on the list as well, but withdrew my name because I was involved in nonpartisan uh, negotiation facilitations okay. up until, you know, the election in 94. And my mom was in the Gauteng legislature uh, for a number of years. So my, fa- my father and mom uh, really had uh, a very interesting role in the transition process and are very grateful for their experience. Are you glad you didn't get into politics um, in that way in terms of uh, going and taking up a seat in Parliament? Well, you know, I, I'm glad that I stayed in the sense I, I was I managed to play a quite, I think, important role in cementing a peaceful election because, uh, and if, I, if I'd accepted uh, being in Parliament, I would have had to resign from the role I was playing in the negotiations. Uh, and I'm not sure that we would have had, frankly, the same result because what I was able to do was link up with a variety of people to get Portalesi and Encarta into uh, the elections at the last minute. And that was obviously a, a very important um, role. And more broadly, if I'd gone into Parliament, I would have been 31. Uh, and, you know, my view at the time was that it was really now black leadership that was needed in Parliament under Mandela's government. And it's, you know, my, was my thought then, still to be tested now, that you know, 25 years later, which is really where we are, that, you know, people would play their role based on merit, not on on the basis of, you know, affirmative action or call it racial, on a racial basis. So, you know, I think now is the time where 25 years later, we're getting to see that, you know, what we need is we need the, the best skills and the best expertise to lean into the problems that South Africa has, and we have so many. If you were approached again, would uh, you do it this I'm time? I'm not sure that we really are the... Excuse me? If you were approached again, would you do it this time? So I think, you know, I'm in a different phase of my life now where I can enter into public service. And I, you know, if I was approached for the right role and I had the authority to do what I was being asked to do and I now have the skills, I have financial, financial independence... I would certainly serve the country in whatever way the country wanted me to do. But it would have to be something, you know, that was, um, you know, a, a significant... Parliament, would, Parliament wouldn't uh, necessarily be your first choice. I mean, a lot of people, very you know, strong personalities in Parliament, get very frustrated by the uh, by, by the horse trading and the bureaucracy and the, the party politics of it all. I mean, I think that's uh, that much is clear. Um, you would you see yourself in a more sort of a fixer-upper role um, for, the, for the country as a whole. Yeah, Bruce, I think what I'm trained for now after 25 years in banking is to have, you know, is to play a role in the executive in getting things done. Um, so, you know, whether it's, you know, in transacting, uh, and this, you know, the South African Airways is a very good example of something that's provided or, you know, is provided a sense that we can actually fix our problems. But there's so many other problems uh, to fix in South Africa, starting with the unemployment problem, 
the public service problem, um, the economy, the balances in our society or the imbalances in our society. So there's so much that one can do. Uh, so certainly I think the legislature is a very important policy uh, policy framework to get right, but it's not so much a policy problem we have as an execution problem, implementation yeah. problem. And so that's where I think my skills are best served. But, you know, I, you know, you serve a country when you, when you ask to serve. I've got lots going on. I'm, I'm busy on very many fronts. Uh, but I would certainly respond to something that was meaningful. You were very outspoken in your role and very supportive of the transition from Jacob Zuma after Ntlanta Nene and you and Jabu and others stepped up uh, to to the plate and to really, I think, came under a huge amount of personal stress at the time because you know, there was a, a huge pushback against uh, sort of the business's resistance to Jacob Zuma and, and the lunacy of that time. Uh, are you still involved sort of in that sort of fixing space or are you more private sector focused now with, with Yale and other issues? Well, I'm actually completed my Yale stint um, and I'm back in South Africa full time. But, okay. you know, at that time that we were dealing with Jabu played such an instrumental role. I remember sitting uh, with him. He asked me to sit next to him. Uh, when he was delivering the message on behalf of business with Jacob Zuma literally two feet away from us. Uh, and he basically said, you know, um, uh, that um, the Gupta and Zuma families' activities were unacceptable uh, straight to the president's face, who actually, I think, responded uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very calm way because, you know, many presidents wouldn't take that. But... Um, but you know, yes. So we had we had significant pressures, uh, but it was absolutely critical we did that. In reality, you know, we used to say as business to investors, you know, that we have a very strong, resilient civil society, constitution, judiciary, the press, the role of the media being so so active, the role of the business community being so active in labour and so on. Uh, but in reality, a lot more damage was done than. Uh, even we knew at the time. And, yeah. you know, South Africa, you know, the Zuma era plus COVID now have really put the Ramaphosa administration under huge amounts of pressure. And he really needs all the help he can get from everyone, from business, from labor, uh, and from government. And I, my personal point of view is that it's not just up to government to fix it. You know, we all in it. We all have to help, whether it's business, whether it's uh, trade unions. So the trade unions have to deal with this public sector wage ballooning. Business has to deal with the fact that there is a huge amount of people who are unemployed. So the Youth Employment Service Project is one small but important aspect of fixing it. Um, but we really need to get growth going in the country in order to get, get employment. And, and generally, I think the government is going to have to do some quite uh, unorthodox things, such as an unemployment grant, uh, which I believe is absolutely necessary. It, it may or may not be a basic income grant, but we certainly are going to have to um, put more resources into the unemployed to stimulate the economy, to get people to work. Because if you have 11 million people are unemployed and 15 million people employed, it is not a, 
a, a recipe for success. You have to get much more productivity from the society. And so I know we've we've talked about this, Bruce, for years, uh, you and I on the show. Uh, but the situation is actually uh, getting more serious uh, and, and not improving. But COVID was unexpected. You know, it's not, It's you just have to rise to the challenge and deal with it. But I think we're going to have to do some of the things that other societies have done, uh, including, you know, um, putting money to work, uh, which will raise the debt. But if we don't raise uh, the growth, level of growth, then, you know, the debt to GDP ratio is going to go up as growth goes down. It's not just yeah. debt that goes up, the, the debt to GDP goes up. So, yeah, absolutely. you know, we Come have on, growth going we, in the society. We most certainly do. We'll pause yeah. and just uh, and come back in a second. I'm curious about you and your money because 25 years in banking would have been lucrative. Um, d- Dad has had, had a good career as well. So looking forward uh, to chatting a little bit about money in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. He holds a BA in architecture from Wits University, went into banking and is willing to give time to help South Africa repair itself. Colin Common, I... Are you in a position now where if you didn't work another day in your life in terms of receiving a salary, you'd be okay? So you're available for national duty uh, on a no-fee basis? Uh, yeah, unequivocally, yes. I mean, uh, it sounds, it's, it sounds uh, you know, easy to say, but I, th- I think the, the reality is that having spent 25 years in banking, and benefited through that time, you know, that's wealth, wealth creation is not what drives me. It might happen, <laughs> but yeah. um, it's not what drives me. And certainly if I was in a government service role, I wouldn't want to take a salary. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the ability to do that and to have taken care of your money. I mean, did you do it all yourself? Did you outsource the process of, you know, I mean, earning a salary is one thing, even earning a great salary is one thing, but a, in, building capital and allowing that capital to grow takes an awful lot of energy and time. How did you do it? Yeah, I, look, I think some, you know, different people make, uh, make uh, wealth happen. In different ways, I'm I'm actually quite conservative, um, and so what I've done throughout my time is um, I've obviously invested in physical assets, but I've saved along the way, um, and and I've always believed, you know, in trying to accumulate enough savings that at some point I wouldn't have to work, and I'd be able to pay for the education of my children, and I have, you know. Uh, you know, children who are going to international universities, which is very expensive. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it's trying to work out what is the amount of saving one needs to have, have and then also be able to live a certain lifestyle um, so that you, you know, you, you, you don't get yourself into problems in the, in the future. So that I, I think, you know, at some point you, and a lot of people get this wrong, I've got to say. At some point, you've earned enough and you've got to live your life and you've got to give back to society and you know, invest in making the, the world a better place. And, I, you know, roughly when I retired from Goldman Sachs, I'd made that decision that I'd reached that point uh, and, you know, the last third of my life, let's call it the next 20 years, is 
is really about you know reinvesting in society and that's that's what's driving me uh, do you have any you know, bad personal habits? Do you have expensive habits? Very briefly, Jabu told us uh, when we spoke to him about this that he loved fast cars and he loved nice houses and he had houses all over the place. And, of course, he had a penchant for hats as well. Do you have some similar sort of habits? Yeah. I, Jabu is such a character. I love him like a brother and I'm going to miss him terribly. Um, I, you know, my my habits... If I've, if I've got one indulgence, it's traveling. Um, so I, I absolutely love traveling. I've been to New York twice this year. I've just taken my family to the Maldives. Uh, you know, I um, in order to get to, to New York, you have to be in other countries for 14 days outside of South Africa. So that is an expensive uh, thing to do, and that's sort of my indulgence, but I, I love it. And, you know, it's about seeing the world, about... Uh, you know, and not letting things like COVID defeat you, you know, and, you're, and people will be doing that in their own ways. And I, I say that knowing that there's just a huge amount of pain in the world, uh, in South Africa at the moment. And, you know, every, every morning one wakes up to bad news. Uh, so, you know, I say that with a great amount of respect to the pain that's in society at the moment. Colin Coleman, thank you very much for sharing with us this evening. Colin Coleman. Up for national duty, if anybody's listening.